Okay, good morning. Okay. Right, we are carrying on our series going through the book of John. Uh, if, you've, uh, if this is your first time here or if you've not been here for a while, we are going through uh, the book of John. It's, uh, it's an account of Jesus. Uh, and it's, uh, the reason this book was written by John is that uh, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're going through it passage by passage. And just to get you excited for this morning, I've got a quote for you. Okay. So uh, this is a quote from Martin Luther. He was a 16th century church reformer. And he said about the book of John, he said, should a tyrant... Um, Sorry, uh, Martin Luther was, he was a German monk. Uh, I'm not going to do a German accent because I can't. And he probably said it in German. I'm not going to do that either. So you have to imagine. Here we go. Here's the quote. Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel according to John were to escape him, Christianity would be saved. Ooh. So what Martin Luther is saying is the book of John and Romans is so jam-packed full of truth about who Jesus is, about what the gospel is, about our faith, that even if we lost the whole rest of the Bible, but we still had the book of John and Romans, there would be enough truth for us there to know really clearly who Jesus is, what our faith is about, and Christianity would be saved. So it's quite exciting because we're going through the book of John. Okay? Excited? Yeah? Maybe? Yes? Thank you, Lesnar. Good. Um, having said that, the passage we're going to look at today, where we've made it to, to chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 6 uh, in a minute, is quite a challenging passage. There's some kind of controversial bits in there. Jesus is seemingly being quite provocative. Uh, and actually, at the end of this passage, the disciples, their response to what Jesus says is they say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? That's what we're facing today. So we're going we're gonna to try and unpick it. We're going to try and accept it. But I thought it'd be a great place to... I'm just going to pray really quickly for us that actually God would help us accept it and hear his word through this passage. So I'll just pray quick. Uh, Father God, uh, your word says, ears to hear and, and eyes to see. Both are gifts from the Lord. And we pray this morning for eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. I pray you would help us receive your word, help us see how it applies to us, how we can change, how we can know Jesus more. Amen. Okay, so um, I've been trying to uh, work out how to communicate this passage, how we can work our way through it. It's a big chunk. We've got 50-ish verses to get through. Uh, and I thought, well, I could do it in one big chunk, or I could do it in some big sections and come out with some really meaty points, maybe two or three big points. But actually, decided, keeping the food theme going, it's going to be more of a tapas meal today. Okay. Anybody like tapas? 
a few people like tapas. Well, you'll be all right. Um, so there's like a, a tapas is lots of little dishes. Uh, so we're going to have lots of little points. We're going to try and apply it as we go through. And I've asked uh, Jess actually. She's going to be <laughs> she's going to be busy. She's going to be coming up and down and reading um, bits of it, and then we'll stop. We'll apply it, and then we'll carry on. So um, just before you do that, I'd say just keep in mind. I think if there was a main point through this passage. I would say it kind of leads on really nicely from what Tom and Katie brought, that actually the main point is fix your eyes on Jesus and go deeper. Come deeper. So that's what Jesus' challenge is. Come deeper. Whether you've just responded to what Katie said, whether you've been a Christian for a long time, come deeper. Okay? Thanks. Thanks, Jess. So this is verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake and they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Thanks, Jess. Okay. So we'll look at those few verses uh, just to begin with. Uh, and if you look back at the beginning of chapter 6, what you'll see is this comes off the back of the feeding of the 5,000. What had happened was loads of people had gathered to listen to Jesus. Uh, they'd been with him all day, and uh, by the end of the day, uh, Jesus looked at them all, and they were tired and worn out. They were in the middle of nowhere. There was no food anywhere, and Jesus fed the whole crowd with a little boy's lunch. He took the little boy's lunch, gave it out, and the entire crowd was fed. We read, read that at the beginning of chapter 6. And actually, the crowd, they were so excited by this, you can read that they wanted to make Jesus their king by force. They wanted to make him their king. Jesus uh, knew that this wasn't his time, so he actually withdraws from the crowd. And he goes up a, up a mountain. The disciples, they go down to the lake, they get the last boat and they, they row off, they sail off. Uh, and the crowd kind of hangs around waiting to see where Jesus is, looking for Jesus. Uh, Jesus goes down, walks across the water, catches up with the disciples, and then goes over to the other side of the lake and goes and starts talking in a synagogue. So we join this passage here where the people, the crowd, they've given up looking for Jesus over that side. So now they're spreading out trying to find him. They find Jesus. And their response is, when did you get here? They were a bit, they were a bit surprised. How did Jesus get uh, to the other side of the lake? Um, Jesus' response, straight away, he dives in and he's looking at their heart attitude. Um, he says, you aren't looking for me because of the signs, but because I fed you. And I think this is probably the first point of this tapas meal, the first dish coming out. Um, spiritual food is more important than physical food. Have the people been looking for Jesus because of the miracles he performed? No. According to Jesus, it's because he fed them. Because he met their physical needs, gave them some food, they were hungry, Jesus fed them, and now they're looking for him because they want more food. See, they people, they've, they've decided that, oh, this is pretty good. Don't have to 
buy food, don't have to cook the food, we'll just follow Jesus around and he can keep on feeding us. Um, I don't know, maybe students, maybe you guys can relate to that. Not having to... Is that rude? Sorry. <laughs> Maybe others can, can uh, relate to that as well. Not just students, but I'm sure you can. Anyway, uh, not having to buy food, not having to cook the food. That sounds like a pretty good deal. The people, they've come looking for him because Jesus has met their physical needs. They've made Jesus all about their own well-being. They've kind of ignored the signs, ignored the miracles. They've come to Jesus to fix their, their physical needs. Their takeaway messages um, from that whole miracle wasn't anything more than Jesus can improve my life. That's why they're looking for Jesus. And I, I think that, applies, that, that is similar to a lot of people today as well. That maybe even us sometimes, we come to Jesus to improve our lives. Our main reason for seeking out Jesus is for him to fix our physical problems. So maybe, maybe you could uh, take a quick look at your prayer life in that kind of context and just think about, does your prayer life revolve around asking Jesus for stuff to fix your temporary problems? Oh, Jesus, please, could we have a bigger house? Jesus, we need more money. Uh, keep my family safe, keep me safe, or I'm late, I need a car parking space. I don't know. I think uh, we look at Jesus' response to these people in that, with that attitude. His response is, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And where's your focus is it on food that spoils or is it on food that endures to eternal life? Jesus says, come deeper, know me more. Jess, because we have the next couple of verses. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Okay, so the conversation's moving on. Uh, Jesus has kind of dangled a carrot to them. He said, um, don't work for food that spoils, but for, but for food that endures to eternal life. So their response now is, okay, well, we've got to be honest, that food Jesus fed us before, that was pretty good, like that. Okay food that endures for eternal life. Okay, Jesus, what must we do to do the work God requires? Again, it's pretty classic human response here. All right, there's this spiritual blessing thing here that I want. What do I need to do to achieve that? How do I obtain that? What's it going to cost me? We would call that works working to achieve that spiritual blessing. So I've got, I've got a question for you, okay? I've got, got a question, and this is a, a response question. So I'm going to get you to, to give out your answer on the count of three to the question. Uh, you've got to kind of commit to this answer as well, okay? So uh, on, on three, um, are Christians 
Saved by works. One, two, oh, have we three? <laughs> One, two, three. No. A resounding no. Interesting, interesting. Okay, I'm guessing if you said no there, you are thinking about our works. Are we saved by our, uh, uh, by our own works? Can we earn our way to that spiritual blessing, to that eternal bread that Jesus is offering? No, there is nothing that you can do to earn that level of uh, righteousness before God. So good job, correct. However, I would have also accepted the answer yes. So nobody in here, but that's fine. Um, are Christians saved by works? Correct, we are not saved by our, by our own works. However, if you'd said yes, I would have guessed that you'd have been talking about Jesus' works. See, we can only, only come to God through Jesus' works. Maybe this is your first time here, or you've been here for a while, but you're still trying to figure out what do these people actually believe? Or you're trying to work out, how do I, how do I sign up to this kind of club properly? How am I getting to the, the, uh, the, the inner gang? Or maybe a bit like the people in here, you're trying to figure out, or you've just realised, actually, I've got no idea how to obtain this eternal bread, this eternal life that Jesus is talking about. I don't know. If that's where you're at, you need to listen to Jesus' answer. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. See, the people, they are asking the wrong question. So they've asked, what must we do to do the works God requires? They've made it about themselves and their own works. Actually, the proper question that they should have been asking, Jesus points them to the answer to the question. The question should be, what needs to be done? There is something that needs to be done, but the people have decided, well, what must I do? You can't. It's about what Jesus does. So I'm just going to read some verses here from, uh, from Ephesians. So it says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God, pre God prepared in advance for us to do. It is Jesus' works that save us, that rescue us. That's why Jesus said on the cross, he shouted, it is finished. Your sins are paid for. It is done. There is nothing further that needs to be done. The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. You can't earn your own purity. If you're trying to come to God because, or you're trusting in your own sense of being a good person, it's not going to be good enough. Maybe your own, you've got some, a high set of morals, great, but that's not going to earn your way back to God. It's not going to allow you to stand with confidence before him. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Verse 30. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. 
as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay, the conversation is moving on. Jesus challenged them. He kind of said, you need to believe in the one that he has sent. So now their response is, okay, well, if you're saying that, well, give us a sign and then we'll believe you. Give us a sign. Can you see how people often just cannot see what God is doing right in front of them? Just uh, looked at the beginning of chapter 6. They've literally, Jesus has literally just fed an entire crowd with five loaves and two fishes. Just happened. If they'd have been able to put two and two together, they'd have realised that Jesus has just walked across the lake. We've seen earlier in John how Jesus healed a boy. We saw a paralysed man Jesus made walk again. And they're saying, just, just give us a sign, Jesus. We just need a sign. One sign and then we'll believe you. Huh. I don't know... I, I've heard people say that to me. Maybe you've heard it as well. When you're, maybe you're talking about your faith and uh, they go, oh, that's great. If, if God would just uh, reveal himself to me, if God just gave me a sign, then I would believe. I'm not entirely sure that is always the case. Actually, these people, they'd seen miracles and they couldn't see Jesus through that. People sometimes harden their hearts against that. Actually, the people here... Their question, they, they say to Jesus, we want a sign. But actually, more, spe more specifically, they're saying, actually, we'd like some more bread, please. They come back to their, their physical needs again. They're saying, oh, see, Moses, Jesus, pay attention, Jesus. Moses fed us manna in the wilderness. Jesus, I know you fed a crowd once. Once. Moses fed us in the wilderness day after day after day. They're, um, they're quite one-dimensional. They're back to wanting more food, more bread. It must have been pretty good bread. Um, but Jesus' challenge to them here, he kind of calls them out on that. He says, well, actually, it wasn't Moses that provided that bread for you. It was God in the, in the wilderness that gave you that manna day after day. And I think there's a, uh, a helpful little, just a little challenge for us there about do we sometimes do what they've done here is they've taken God's glory and they've given it to Moses. Do we sometimes give God's glory to people or, or things or structures other than God? See, the correct balance here, it should be gratitude to people. You can be grateful to people, but it's glory to God. Gratitude to people, glory to God. And I wonder if sometimes we get that balance a bit wrong. We kind of, we skew it a little bit. And maybe we step too much into giving glory to people and taking the focus and emphasis off of God. So maybe that could be um, worship leaders, or it could be spiritual Christian leaders, significant leaders, where we end up saying things like, oh, 
I don't really know what God's saying to me through this passage. I need to listen to so-and-so before I get it. Or, or that person, they're so, they're so talented and so gifted. I really um, hear from, uh, from God when I listen to that person. And I just wonder if sometimes we just skew it ever so slightly and we move away from gratitude to people and glory to God. Or maybe it could be things even like the NHS. NHS? pretty good. We can be really, really grateful and happy that we have got the NHS. It is an amazing provision in this country to have care and, um, and look after you if you're poorly. But do we sometimes put our faith and our trust in the NHS more than on God? Maybe it's, it's kind of subtle, perhaps, and maybe I'm digging a bit too deep into it, but I think we need to, to look at that and remember it's gratitude to people and glory to God. We can absolutely be grateful to people, but we have to give glory to God. We can recognize how God is working through people, but ultimately they are pointing us to God, not to themselves. So let's make sure that we are giving glory to God. Verse 34. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So the people respond and say, okay, always give us this bread. And Jesus' response is, I am the bread of life. Jesus is using the conversation that they're just having about manna, using the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 to build on that and say, actually, the big point here is, I am the bread of life. This is the first of the I am statements where over the next few chapters, uh, Jesus is going to make a number of statements where he says, I am something to help the people understand who he is, to show them more truth. And often that comes off the back of a, uh, a miracle or, or something that has just happened. And Jesus uses it as a sign. Does anyone, can anyone mention, uh, can anyone... Uh, shout out any of the other I am statements. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Very good. Any others? I am the good shepherd. I am the water of life. Oh, any others? I am the light of the world. Very good. Okay, there's a number of them coming up where Jesus is using um, uh, these phrases and this imagery to show the people more of who he is. So uh, later on, we'll see Jesus healing a blind person. And he follows it up with saying, I am the light of the world. 
Amazing. Jesus has healed a blind person. But what's it pointing to? The real truth. Jesus is the light of the world. Or later on we see um, one of Jesus' friends, Lazarus, he dies. Uh, Mary and Martha are devastated. Jesus is weeping. Uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, from the dead, brings him back to life. Amazing. And he follows it up with saying, actually, get this, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is pointing the people through these miracles to the deeper truth of who Jesus is. So we see here, it's been the feeding of the 5,000 people. Jesus had compassion on them because they were hungry and they needed food, and he fed them. He's pointed to um, the manna in the wilderness where God provided for the, the people, but he's making the point here, look deeper, I am the bread of life. Why bread? Well, bread was the, uh, the basic food, They're the main part of their, their diet. They needed it really to keep them, keep them alive. If we, uh, if we think about the, the manna, they needed that day after day after day in the wilderness where God provided it for them to, uh, to keep them alive. But it was also a sign that God was with them um, and that he was faithful. Um, so I don't know if uh, any of the children, just having a look around, some of you had some sheets to kind of have a think about, uh, how is Jesus like bread? Did anybody come up with anything? How is Jesus like bread? Anybody shout out any suggestions there? Nope, okay. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I heard a good one this week. Ben Gibbons, how is Jesus like bread? He is risen. Okay. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> but actually, Jesus is pointing to the bread, to the feeding of the 5,000, to the manna. Um, he's saying, I, I will sustain you. Actually, you need me. I am faithful. As good as the bread was, they would feed it. It would keep them alive. It would sustain them temporarily. But actually doesn't matter how much bread you eat, you're still going to die. Whereas, Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life which leads to eternal life. You need to consume me. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Starting to heat up a little bit. The people are starting to, to um, grumble. Oh, Jesus. They're starting to um, get upset at him. And what's their main objection? It's because... They've known Jesus since their childhood. They've grown up with him. And now he's saying that he'd come down from heaven. So, because they've grown up with him, because they've known him, even when Jesus is doing these incredible miracles, feeding the 5,000 and walking across the water, they can't accept Jesus because they're actually, they're, they're too familiar with him. They know him too well, or well, they think they know him so well, that actually they can't actually recognise who he is. I wonder if that's like you. 
maybe you've grown up with Jesus. Maybe you were in a Christian family and they told you about, uh, they told you Bible stories and you learned memory verses and you learned all about Jesus and then you went to a, uh, a youth group, you learned some more there. And now you're at a stage where uh, I know a lot about Jesus, but he's not really for for me, and maybe you're so familiar with Jesus that you're not actually tuned in anymore to who Jesus is. If that is you, I just would challenge you and say, please just take a step back and press into who is Jesus. Don't kind of allow yourself to be so familiar with what you think you know about Jesus that you miss who Jesus actually is. It said in the, earlier in verse 40, um, my fa- for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So don't miss that. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Okay, the next um, little point, I think, for us to kind of uh, think about off the back of these verses, uh, the next tapash dish, let's, um, let's talk about predestination, shall we? A nice little dish there. Um, does the Father choose us to be saved, or do we choose the Father? Ooh, that's a tricky one. Are our actions predetermined? Do we decide... Uh, what we do, or does, does God decide? This is a, an interesting debate that lots of Christians have been having about, some, some people would say, uh, we choose to come to God, it's, it's completely in our control, or others would say, actually, it's entirely God's choice. It just is predetermined, um, you don't have a choice in it, it's God's, in God's control. And I've got to be honest, when I start thinking about this, that side of it, it kind of hurts my head a little bit. Um, but I think these verses are quite helpful here, actually, just, uh, just on this. So if we look at verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Seems pretty clear there that actually it is God who draws you to himself. It's God who draws you. And yet, on some level, we also seem to need to decide as well. So, verse 45. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. Or verse 47. The one who believes has eternal life. So, both of these elements actually seem to be true. And they can, they can be true, and they, they, they come together. The Father draws you, but you need to decide. Okay? The Father draws, but you need to decide. 
Maybe if you're a Christian, you can see that. If you think about your life, you can pinpoint times in your life or areas where you've been very aware the Father is drawing you in. He's been maybe used other people or family or friends or situations to just reveal his grace more to you. You've seen the Father drawing you in. But there's also been other times that you can see where you've had to make decisions to believe and to respond to him. The Father draws, you decide. Maybe you're earlier on in that process. I, the things that Katie and Tom were sharing earlier, it was amazing. It was so challenging in, uh, in that. And maybe you're here today, maybe, maybe you've been dragged along by a friend, didn't really want to be here, but you're here, um, or you're listening to this, and you're aware, actually, if you're honest with yourself, that actually you can see things in your life where the Father is drawing you. You're aware of God moving and in your life, and if you look at it, you can see, and you've got a sense that God is drawing you. If that's you, how are you going to respond? What are you going to do? Are you going to choose? Are you going to respond? It's not okay to just be really passive about it and allow and ignore the Father's drawing. Actually, it says, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. So if that's you, just think about well, what's going to happen if you don't believe, if you don't respond. If you flip that round, you will not be receiving eternal life. The Father, the father draws, you decide. Got to respond. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. And now he's going a step further. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Oh, what is going on here? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Maybe, maybe Jesus didn't mean to say that. Maybe it was a slip note. He says it again and again and again. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Oh. Parents, if you're here with your children, I could empathise if maybe you're thinking, oh, why 
don't we have children's work again? Um, is there not some pictures that we can get them to colour in? Um, maybe you need to just have a look at their notes that they're making at the end of this, I'm not sure. Um, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Can you see that this is, this is incredibly offensive and provocative and challenging? How do we respond to that? The disciples are about to say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I think even that is an understatement. Remember, these are, this is people who, they can't even eat pork. And Jesus is saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. The law, it forbade them. It was very clear in the law. You cannot eat and you cannot drink blood. Now Jesus is saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. How do we apply this to ourselves? What is going on? We're going to try and unpick it, try and figure out what Jesus is saying, how Jesus is he's challenging their thinking, he's challenging where they're at, and I think there's challenges here for us as well today. We've got to understand it. So it's interesting that the bit of the Bible where um, it says, do not eat blood, do not drink blood. So it's in, in one of the books of the law. So in Leviticus 17, that's where it forbids them from eating and drinking blood. And the verse where, uh, the reason that it gives, the reason that it says, do not eat blood, do not drink blood, is in verse 11, it says, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The blood was so precious to them. So this comes because uh, this comes back from their, their sacrificial system that they had where they would, they would kill animals and they would use that blood to make uh, ceremonially unclean things to give them some kind of um, outward level of purity before God. The, ble- the blood was what allowed them to approach God. And we can kind of interpret a bit more of what Jesus is trying to say here about his blood if we look in, uh, in Hebrews. So in Hebrews 9, I'm just going to read another verse. In Hebrews 9, 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Jesus is using really, really challenging language here to try and make a spiritual point. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. But do we take that literally? This is, this is something that we try and figure out literally. Well, okay, I'm going to apply that literally to my life. It's a tricky one. But I think... Throughout the Bible, you see figures of speech used to make a bigger point, to make a, to, to make a link. So, I mean, I could, I could do it. If I said to you, oh, I'm starving, I guess you kind of know that I'm not actually starving, but I am pretty hungry. This passage doesn't help. Um, but in the Bible, there's figures of speech used all the time to make points. So I'll give you some examples. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. That doesn't mean if you look up and around, you can see all the people hoping in the list, not like Red Bull. Actually, you, um, this is about being full of strength in the Lord. It's the point that it's making. Or 
The Lord is my rock. It's not an actual rock. Rather, the Lord is one who is strong and reliable. You can walk confidently upon him. Or, your word is a lamp to my feet. Not going to be much good in the dark. Actually, it's saying, it's a, it's a guide for us. It's to reveal the mysteries of life. It's to help us see the truth. Or here's one from Jesus. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus is not a chicken. Um, he's saying, he's saying he wants to watch over his people, like a, like a hen would gather, gather its chicks. Jesus is saying he's using figure of speech to make make a point. So when we when we uh, encounter these figures of speech, we've got to work out what is the purpose of it. What is it trying to communicate? We see uh, similar language used by Jesus when he uh, when he uh, introduces communion. He said, "This is my blood poured out for you. This is my body broken for you." using communion as a sign. So when we take communion, we're kind of remembering that we are completely devoted to Jesus. It is all about the cross. It is about his blood, his body making us right with God. It, it's not literally, we don't believe it's literally his, uh, his blood and his body, but it's a, it's a powerful symbol and it's a spiritual thing that happens where we lift our eyes up to God when we take communion. So what, what, image, what, what is Jesus trying to convey through using this language? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. For me, this is the, the climax of this whole passage. Jesus is challenging the people. Jesus is challenging you that it's not enough just to acknowledge him. Actually, you need to consume him. You need to fill every part of your being with Jesus. All that Christ is must become a part of you. This isn't, you can't just have a lukewarm faith. Jesus is saying, don't, don't be half in, half out. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Don't just see the signs that Jesus is doing and kind of go, oh, that's great. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, oh, that's kind of nice. Actually, eat his flesh, drink his blood. I want to challenge you again, just take a look at your life. Is this where Jesus is, uh, is this where you're at? Jesus is challenging us to go deeper with him, to really press in in your, your spiritual life. Don't just acknowledge that he is the bread of life and maybe just have a, have a little nibble and fine. Actually, no, eat my flesh, drink my blood. It's not just about your temporary happiness. This is about restoration of your relationship with, with the Father. Jesus came down from heaven. Why? So that our sins could be, uh, could be forgiven, to restore us to the Father. It's not about our works. 
not things that we can do to obtain this. It is all about Jesus. We need to press in, eat his flesh, drink his blood, let Jesus consume, uh, let us consume Jesus and let everything about that Christ is become a part of us. This is such a challenging passage and I don't really know how to to say any more than it. So I, I, what I think we'll do is we're just gonna, we're gonna respond off the back of this. So I don't know if the band could uh, come back up, but I really wanna challenge you to just reflect on some of these. Are you at that point where you are going that deep with Jesus? Where Jesus is saying, go deeper. I am the bread of life, go deeper. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. It's just a question to hopefully help you reflect on this and to kind of let God speak to you. If Jesus was removed from your life, would it look any different? If you didn't have Jesus in your life, would it look any different? And if it doesn't, if you don't think it would, maybe you need to just consider, is Jesus really your source of sustenance in every moment? Let me just pray and then we'll respond.